not everyone is built to be on a stage in the spotlight, but no one was built, designed, or created to sit in a corner. And so I wanted to explore that, heck, being ourselves may not need the onstage that someone that wants that or needs that or is that limelight, but we all need that place and space. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. J.R. Flatter here. And this is our Building a Coaching Culture podcast. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. Hello. How are you doing, Lucas? Good. Anybody hasn't seen, Lucas wrote and published a song for his bride a few days ago. It was amazing. I got to go back and watch it again. I didn't write the song, but, oh, well. but I did perform it. And <laughs> thank you. We're going to give you that one. <laughs> Good job. We have a distinguished guest today, Dr. J.W. Womack. And I'll let you talk about all that, your journey through your doctorate and your practice of what you're doing, both personally and professionally. So just to remind everybody and, and you, JW, who our audience is, leaders of complex organizations competing and succeeding in the 21st century. Like you, have been studying and practicing leadership for a long time and a lot of what leadership is and, and all of that has remained pretty constant, but people's expectations of the organization's you know, Lucas says he looks out at his career. Uh, there's no 50-year horizon there that he has predictability about what it's going to look like. So we're talking to them about how do you become an employer of choice in the 21st century. We think it has a lot to do with your culture and what style of leadership you have. So that's why we talk about building a coaching culture. So with that, I'll pass it to you, JW. And this is one of the times I know you're a humble person. This is one of the times I want you to tell us all about you and, and brag about yourself. My name is Jason Womack. I go by JW. Currently, I serve as a branch chief of the development branch of the United States Space Force. That job came at the end. So here we are at the end of a backwards looking line. I'll turn 52 next year. My mentor, who I'll wind up talking a little bit about, she is the one that really gave me a framework or a model of the three kinds of people that I'll surround myself by. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. But Frances, uh, she passed last year at age 107. So by my math, I am not yet halfway done. But if I look back, JR and Lucas, you know, I, I don't want to go too far back and too in the weeds, but there are some things that are important. So I was a child of the 70s. Parents split up when I was four. My brother was just born. My mom remarried, and the, the man she remarried, and she became very religious to the point where we were going to church four days a week. I was knocking on doors one or two days a weekend. By the time I was eight years old, I was up on stage uh, doing readings from their book. I left home at 15. I ran away as a sophomore in high school the first time. Anytime a student, a fellow classmate was about to celebrate something, so any holiday, a birthday, Valentine's Day, Easter Day, 
Uh, of course, school was not in session during summer, but it would have been holidays in the summer as well. Someone would come in, they'd, they'd pull me out. I'd go sit outside the class. I could hear through the walls, right? I could hear the singing and I could come back in afterwards and I see the cupcake. And so even though I looked Northern California, you know, I'm a, I'm a young white male, even though I looked like I fit in, for those nearly decade of my life, I didn't. And so the concept grabbed me from very early on. I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I didn't have the word for it. But the concept of being different in amongst a community, it's, it stuck with me. I think it explains things like when I eventually went to college, I double majored in U.S. history and Spanish literature. And if I unpack that in today's terms, I go, well, heck, U.S. history, I wanted to know where I come from. And Spanish literature, I want to know how to communicate globally. I then went on. I got a, a master's degree. My first master's degree was in education. And the thesis I wrote there was on portfolio assessment. And this was in the 90s. So STAR testing, SAT9 testing, a lot of the organized and process-oriented testing. And I jumped in. I go, hey, how do we portfolio assess someone? How do we take them in September? We grow them to June. And then we look at an overall portfolio of what they've learned. Naturally, out of those decade or so, my second master's degree in psychology, I got a master's in spiritual psychology. I studied self-talk. I explored the voice in our head that would change what I was about to do. Or what I found more and more again, the voice in our head that stops us from attempting. I wrote my first TED Talk about the story of growing up, and I had never shared that story publicly until TED. And that one was the, the thesis of that, JR, was not everyone is built to be on a stage in the spotlight, but no one was built, designed, or created to sit in a corner. And so I wanted to explore that, heck, being ourselves may not need the onstage that someone that wants that or needs that or is that limelight, but we all need that place and space. All of that. Along the way, I started a, a coaching firm. My wife and I started a coaching company in 2007. And from 2007 until 2019, I positioned myself in and I was the coach that companies hired for their recently promoted managers. That was my spot. So if someone was going through organizational change on a grand level, I would hand that off to some of the community members I had. I would get calls from directors and managing directors who just got pulled up from the VP or, dire or, or director spot. And it was always the same. Hey, I've just been selected to be the manager from my peers. What's going to go weird? And so we found that there were some behavioral psychosocial things that we could address through the coaching process, not the mentoring process. And I know you explore that. But the words as you were sharing early on, you know, when, when you said competing and succeeding, I wrote down the word game. And so I think it's, it's important to know, folks, as I, as I cage some of my responses, I, from the age eight, I played a game of survival. I played a game of finding a way to fit in. I played a game of finding out and then feeding back to people what 
I was able to somehow intuit or I had the chutzpah to say, here's what I'm seeing and what you're doing and what you're getting. I always learn every time I listen to you. So it strikes me that you have a strong respect for academia. You spent a lot of time in the classroom. You continue to spend a lot of time on the other end in front of the classroom. Talk to us a little bit about scholarship and practice. Where do the two come together as, as a manager or a leader? Yeah, I think, I think the beautiful thing, and, and this is where I channel my inner Albert Einstein, right? The beautiful thing here is I will pay a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of attention, whatever the currency is that you've got out there, leaders. I will pay for a better question. It's why I go to therapy, my wife and I go to therapy. I mean, why wouldn't I? I go to the doctor, get a checkup. Why wouldn't I go to a counselor? And I remember in one of my early sessions, I said, I said to the therapist, I said, look, I would pay you if you could help my wife and I argue about something new. <laughs> <laughs> and so leaders out there, like, wouldn't it be cool if next year we were arguing upset, if we were emotionally moved because of something new, not what we were carrying from 2023. And so where I see scholarship and practice and, and full transparency, my, my doctoral work was an EDD, so an educational doctor. How'd you make the choice, right? Because I could have gone PhD. I could have gone EDD. The Juris Doctor one was totally out. So not doing the law thing. But when I looked at, when I lined them up and I said, great, PhD, their hope and goal is that they're going to produce a theory. They're going to produce new scholarship. And then what I said is I said, well, wait a minute, man, there's so much going on in, in theory of motivation and theory of influence and theory of organizational change. If I take those as the triad that come together, I go, what, what's the missing connection? And so the, the work that I did for three years out of the University of Southern California is I wrote a dissertation on reflective practice. But slash comma, however, it wasn't reflective practice on what I did. It was reflective practice on how I felt. And so in the interviews, when I asked people, I had to start with, so what did you do? How did you reflect on that? But then the interviews would start to cage themselves into how did you feel? Do you feel as a result of the experience you had, the moment you had, whatever transpired? And what I find is, in the busyness, you know, the other words that I wrote down early on were collaboration and growth, right? What do both of those things reward? They reward done and move, all right? Even collaboration, I have to be very careful because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end of collaboration. That beginning of collaboration might mean that we talk about something enough to realize that we actually should stop talking about. Very difficult for someone who's completion checklist oriented. Very difficult for someone who's being watched by either shareholders or bosses. And so then I'll always ask, it's like, okay, so in that collaborative coaching culture space, how important is the question? So that's why, you know, when, when I think of scholarship and practice, I'm going to come back to, what did Albert Einstein say? He would spend 55 minutes designing the question because if he designed it right, he could find the answer in 300 seconds. I see people spending 55 minutes debating.
debating what the question is. And then the loudest, most senior leader says, well, this is what we're going to do. So you talk about, you know, motivational theory and, you know, how people fit into that. And then it makes me think about my background. I studied game design in college and I'm thinking about games as kind of like a a system of feedback loops like this is positive, this is negative, and this is how you learn from it and go to the next experience. Do you ever think about, you know, that academic angle that you were mentioning from like a gamification angle? Answer is yes. Um, Jared, I'll, I'll remember his, his last name, wrote a lot about game design, game theory. See, that the issue with the word game, um, what I do is, is, I'll, is I'll sub out the word role. Because if I look at game, right, and this for anybody listening, hit pause after I give you this prompt and then come back if you want. But if, if you think about the word game, right, write the word game on the top of a piece of paper. And now what I'll do is I'll challenge people to write down the elements of a game, right? So Lucas, when you're, when you're building a game, right, it's going to have rules, it's going to have boundaries, it's going to have a time limit, it's going to have milestones, it's going to have a crowd, it's probably going to have some entrance fee, it's going to have some kind of a stadium, a place you go to, right? There's, there's these elements of a game. And then what's fascinating is I can rewrite that same list, but on top of it, I could title it role. All right. If there's boundaries to a game, I'll just be very transparent. There's boundaries to being a husband. Right? If there's a time limit on a game, there's a time limit of how long I'm going to be the branch chief in development. So, so what I can start to do now is I can start to unpack. The question is, what's the output of the outcome. Well, the outcome is I'm going to get to that next level. I'm going to level up. Well, if it's a zero sum game, I level up, you didn't, I have a higher score than you do. What happens when the game that I'm playing doesn't have a zero sum at the end of it? What happens when the game we're playing continues to move forward? And then what I get to theory of motivation. There's only two. There's only two. Everything comes from these, right? Extrinsic or intrinsic? Extrinsic. If I do X, I get Y. Ideally, I want Y, so I'll do more X. This is where some of the rewards that I'm seeing are falling apart. There are some people who are offering their employees a reward that they don't want. And oh, by the way, this goes on both sides of the generations. Intrinsically. And this is where we start to, and I know you work with this, but this is where we start to get into things like personality assessments, typology, and theory. What is it that drives? What is it that drives me? What is it that drives you? What is it that drives us? And when there's space in place, if there's something that drives me, now I need to look at the game's oops roles that I'm playing to find out, is that game factor a part of that role and if it is if it isn't how do i write or rewrite what the game is or what the role is that i want i want to be my best at you know i think about coaching culture i think about conversations right i think about a conversation between a, a supervisor and the supervisee between a leader and a leadee and i've watched over my time at the ends of those conversations you know let me just do a quick data point so when I was coaching those recently promoted managers, one of the things that I promised them is for two days, I would sit by them and I'd watch them work. That was my package. I'd fly out to whatever city 
And literally, I'd be on the trading floor watching someone work. I'd be in the office. I'd watch so I'd watch them do email. I'd watch them do phone calls. I'd watch them mentor. But it didn't take me but a couple of years. Most mentors at the end of a mentoring, and most coaches, if you're not careful, at the ends of the sessions will say something that feels like, and let me know if I can do anything else for you. And I got to tell you, folks, what I watched is the mentee or coachee's eyes get real big because they didn't even know where to start. They just had a 42-minute mentoring or coaching session. And then the person ends it by saying, and let me know if I can do anything else for you. And so, of course, when people ask me, well, you know, what, what should I do? I go, well, I won't should on you, but I'll share with you what I do. At the end of any conversation, I'll end it with one of these two questions. Sometimes I'll package them. I'll go, hey, as a result of us spending some time together, in the next day or two, will you shoot me an email and just let me know what you want to be better at? Better at generally is going to be some kind of an activity, action, a verb. A better is generally because I'm on a roll or a noun. But all of a sudden, then I give them the gift, I think. They go away. 36 hours later, they shoot an email over. Hey, I was thinking, I want to be better at walking into the office and not hitting people with transactional questions right away. I go, wow, that, what, a, what a clear outcome. Now we know what game we're playing. The boundaries, great. You're walking into the office. And then I can say, well, hey, about 12 hours later, you're walking back into your house. Do you want to try and experiment with that there too? What game are you playing? Well, thank you for that. That's fascinating. I, I like that about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, like in relation to games, you know, there's so many different applications there, you know, getting coins or getting a cool thing that you can show to some other player or something. But Thank you for that. We don't get to talk about games a lot on this podcast. <laughs> so I'll put my coaching hat on for a second. And Lucas and I are both coaches like you. Whenever anyone mentions someone they have a personal relationship with, that always piques my interest. And you've mentioned your life partner at least three times. And so I'd like to just explore with you so thinking about who we're talking to, leaders of complex organizations, how does one blend that personal and the professional to become what you and I might describe as the best servant leader you could be? And, and I'm going to be as conscious as I can about how the words fall out just to create context. I'm a white male. I'm cisgender. We do not have any children. I owned my own business for about 15 years. Uh, my wife and I, because I got a job, we moved from Santa Barbara, California to Montgomery, Alabama. We did that in the same year that Jody's best friend and her mom, so same person, was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And so with all of that as the foundation, I'll probably say some things that some of you listening to this will not necessarily find offensive, but just this is my experience, my perspective. I've known Jody since we were in college. We've been married for 24 years next week. And early on, my grandpa gave me a piece of advice. And then my mentor, Jim, gave me a piece of advice. My grandpa said, do not go to bed angry with one another. 
And I'm here to tell you in 30 years since we met in 1993, there have been some late nights because we, we, I want to honor the original JWW, Joy Wayne Womack. And if he gave me that as the one single piece of advice, Jim said, want better for each other. So when I think about, and when I see people in partnership with one another, people say they love one another. And then I just watch how they're cheerleading one another. And if Jody were here and, and if I were here, I mean, you think I deflect attention on me, she takes it to another degree. The things that she has done, I will continue to cheerlead. And, and from the side of the stands, I'll go on and on about and vice versa. Want better for each other. Want better for each other. And it's hard. It's hard. You know, people think that you need to give 100% to your relationship, right? What I found is that there are some days that, that I can only give 70. That means we have a 30% delta, that, that she needs to go find 130, which we all know physically is not even possible. But the analogy worked for me. There's some days where she's rocking 70. And now I need to not forget the problem that I was facing today, but now I need to take a look at her problem. And then the work that we've done in personality, right? So we use the Myers-Briggs. That's where I got trained up a long time ago. I'm ENTJ, right? So you can start to little, do your little dialing in. It's like, aha, uh-huh, okay, I know this guy. Jody is ISFP. And we got those results two weeks before we got married. We did the little Myers-Briggs. Like, hey, you want to know what you're getting into? <laughs> and it hasn't changed. And so when we work together, together, it's, it's a yin and a yang, right? It's, it's, it's a complete circle. When we see things differently and we are not able to communicate that, it's, it's really hard. So it's coming back to, hey, how are you different? How are you looking at this differently than I am? I want the best for you. I'm not going to go to bed angry tonight. Just speaking of, you know, the challenges of relationships, like, you know, there's some frustrating moments, um, but you've gone through a lot of different education and, and things like that. So I'm sure that you've had your moments where you're feeling frustrated with trying to learn something. Do you personally have any ways that you kind of set yourself up for success in those moments? Like, oh, if I just do this, I can go have a cold beer afterwards or something like that. I'm going to show you how E on the ENTJ I am. I will schedule a meeting to share what I learned. That's my reward, but it's also that pull into the future. So case in point, last weekend, I, I somehow, Amazon, silly little thing. I don't remember everything I order, but it does. <laughs> anyway, last week I got three books. Because through the week, I've just been talking to people and, oh, I'll order that book. I don't know how more different these three books can be. <laughs> but what I did, Lucas, is I took a picture of them, all three of them, and I, I, I put it up on Facebook. I said, hey, I'm thinking of putting together a 90-minute book discussion on these three. Who's in? Dude, I met more than 30 people. And so for me, it's like, well, I better, I better go read the books. <laughs> My reward is how can we come together and how can we share a space? Because I know for me, if I, if I make my way through whatever it is I'm learning, you know, even my dissertation, 
for three years, every Sunday from 10 a.m. to noon, my time, I had Zoom open. I had my Zoom channel open. There were 84 people in my cohort. And every Saturday for three years, I sent an email to all 84. Hey, I'm writing. Come on by. And I'm telling you, every Sunday, folks would come in. They would wave. And then they would go to a breakout room. And we'd just be writing in our own breakout rooms. But there was always six dozen, 18 people. And that was my reward for the, the process. My, my dissertation chair, she made me memorize the mantra, trust the process. And that reminds me of coaching. That reminds me of this, this coaching culture that we're attempting to not just promote, but to live, to grow. And if I trust the process, that the question is more important than knowing the answer, that presence is more important than the actual outcome, then I'll get to the outcome and I'll get to the product. As we go deeper and deeper into the 21st century, we're already a quarter of the way through the first century of the, of the new millennia. One of the themes that I, I see emerging, and this is in my judgment, a negative theme is the idea that work is less than noble. And, you know, as a person who has worked a lot to get where you are, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I need to go look up the word noble. Having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. I wonder what the end looks like to people quite often. Because what I hear people talk about is I hear them talking about the next finish line. Stephen Covey tried it, right? Stephen Covey, when, when he wrote Seven Habits of Other People, but even the work that he did back before for the church out in Utah, he had them run through the um, eulogy, which I get, I, I get it, right? It's very stoic. I'm surrounded in a world, right? So four and a half years ago, I'm date stamping this podcast. Four and a half years ago, Jody and I decide we close, get momentum, and we put Womack Company on hold. We, we moved from Santa Barbara to Montgomery so I could teach at Air University, the United States Air Force University. And I got surrounded by people who I was working with. All, all of the folks that I taught alongside were lieutenant colonels. Every now and then I get a rogue senior master sergeant. So lieutenant colonel, what that's at 10, 15, probably 16, 15, 13 to 17 years-ish. And do you know what was on their minds? It was promotion and or retirement. And then what I found was asking them, so what are you working towards? What's the noble outcome that you're stepping into that shows your personal qualities, your higher moral principles, and your ideals. And so that's when we open up the discussion about values and value. Great inventories that I wish every leader would work through their team with. Hey, what are our values? And what do we value? And all of a sudden, now I can have a different conversation. In fact, I can reverse engineer future decisions based on that column. Well, we value X, Y, and Z. Our values are A, B, and C. Wonderful. If we were living those in the future, 
what would we need to have done? And so your initial prompt, you know, when I think about whether or not work is thought of as a noble endeavor, what I wonder is what are people working toward? And if it's promotion or retirement, that's the product. If I go to Disney World and I stay in the hotel, I come back Monday morning, I walk into the office, I don't show people my hotel bill. Hey, look how much money I spent. I don't. I don't show them the product. I talk about the product of the product. So it's not that work is or isn't noble. It's what am I getting as a result of that? What's on the other side? You know, that poem by Rumi, right? Out beyond right and wrong is another field. I'll meet you there. You have an incredible um, perspective, and, and it's it's just interesting to hear you speak about these motivational topics. Um, it, was there any kind of pivotal moment? You mentioned, you know, having to game survival. Was there some moment or person in your life that kind of set you off? What's your superhero origin story? Having decided if I was going to do the work, I've had that happen twice in my life. And they were both life things. So when I say the work, I mean it in the, you know, the Byron Katie uh, view. Like there's, there's the work of life. You know, if I look up the word work, activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a purpose or result. It doesn't say anything about salary. It doesn't say anything about time off. It doesn't say anything about, you know, TDY or taking a business trip. It's mental and physical effort in order to achieve a purpose or a result. And so there, there were t- two times that I can look back where I had to decide, hold on a second, the world will happen at me, around me, to me, for me, pick your word. Am I going to do the work? And both times, those are the big ones, underlying that has always been, it was always self-talk work. It was always value, self-value work. And it was always releasing judgment work. When I let myself, and it's human, when I let myself judge what happened or what they did, that's when I fall backwards. When I let go of the judgment, when I let go of the story that I'm seeing through my eyes, And I go, I know there's another story. Was it? There's three sides to every story. There's what I think happened, what they think happened, and what really happened. But even then, I can get into the mental part of it and spin around in that. For me, I'm going to decide to do the work. What's the work? For me, it was open up a piece of paper, take out a pen or a pencil, and I just write down 6, 12, 18 months from now what I want to be, do, or have. I got that from Peter Drucker. So the work for you is whatever feels like the mental or physical effort on your way to achieving a purpose or a result. Yeah, good stuff. And I love to hear you talking about releasing judgment because part of our learning model, we help people build houses of leadership. It's central to our the way we think and teach leadership, standing on a foundation of courage with several pillars and enabling characteristics. One of the central themes is we all get to build our own house. I have mine, you have yours, and we will not judge each other's houses. 
the only way the two houses come together when we talk about what are we going to agree upon so we can work together and keep that list as short as possible. And it should probably be existential, right? We cannot achieve our mission, our goal, our purpose without these few things. Treat each other with respect. We have, uh, I think, five core values in our 21-year-old company. And it was three for the first 20 years and nine months. It just changed. The millennials updated it from my boomer 21-year-old ideas. But it's short and sharp and crisp. And anything else, the way you wear your hair, the way you dress, the way you, that's yours. So Lucas always gets our last question. So um, I'm going to try to do something relatively quick then. You mentioned very early on, I, I love this idea. I've never heard you expand on it. The voice that stops us. And I think it's just beautifully phrased. And so I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, and in, in my work today, without this philosophy, I could run this. And it would sound like, why don't they just? Why aren't they? How come we don't? And so when I hear those things now with this philosophy, I assume, and let's just go 99.999, I assume that the person that I'm thinking that about, the person that's not doing, the group that's not doing, it, they're not doing it because they don't want to. They're not doing it, A, they never even thought about it, or B, they hadn't thought it was possible. And so that's why I get mentored from dead people. I love this philosophy. Uh, if someone's dead, I'll go read all their stuff. And if, if they were old, they, they, you know, if they were alive recently enough to watch their videos, why dead people? Because um, they can't mess up any more than they already done. I'm always worried when someone alive gets some lifetime achievement award. It's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> they were born after Facebook. <laughs> But what happens is I, I, go, I go read about these biographies. I go read about these people. And, and then what I love to do is I like to go find people that the books aren't written about yet. The websites aren't developed about yet. That, that the History Channel has not done a documentary about yet. Because what I find is that as, as I explore the thoughts I have, I'll read something that someone did, was, or had, and I go, wow, I never really even thought that was possible. And then this is the careful one. My next thought is, I could never do that. Or I wonder what I would have done with that. And those two binary paths, I believe, and this is, this is my opinion, not endorsed by the Department of Defense. I think it is easier and it's even rewarded for people to say, I could never do that. You know, here's, here's a story, Lucas, you asked about a moment. I'll give you a third one. I was teaching, this must've been 1998. So I was 24 and I was teaching 16 year olds, 15, 16 year olds, high school. Took them on a field trip to Barnes and Noble. Ooh, I'm gonna go to a bookstore. And uh, I had about 20, 25 kids. And Jody and I were on this side of the magazine rack. You know how they used to have the magazine racks in bookstores? And I could hear some of my students on the other side, uh, females, and they were having a conversation. And here's what I heard. And, it, and it, it set me off. I think it's why I wrote the paper on self-talk, JR. 
I heard one girl say, oh my gosh, she's so pretty. I could never be that pretty. I'll never look like her. And I, I know this. I mean, this is a memory I have from two and a half decades ago. One of the concepts of how do I multi-manage the voice in my head? How do I wonder what's being said? And how do I manifest something on the other side? Self-talk. We do. It's not a matter of whether or not we do it. It's in what direction do I let it continue in? So a couple of weeks ago, JR and I were talking about building an environment that makes your team successful or makes yourself successful. And we were talking about, you know, Ted Lasso's locker room and how he has all these different elements around. And it looks like your office is really deliberately designed. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you built it this way, why it looks this way? So when I was writing my third book, Long, long time ago, I had a mentor of mine, Larry Chambers, and he's written more than 50 books, prolific author, amazing mentor, great friend. He told me, he said, hey, as you're writing, go grab out of your magazine stack, rip out a picture of a person and write your next page to them. So... Hey, if Larry says it, I'm on go do it. And so to this day, and I wrote this book back in 2012, to this day, I can open up that book to a page and I go, oh, I wrote that to Mother Teresa. Oh, I wrote that to JFK. Oh, I wrote that to Bruce Lee. (laughs) So when I moved to Montgomery, and this is before COVID, right? This is before I spent most of my life in this office, by the way. When we moved to Montgomery, I did two things. One, I got the standing desk because I knew that if I was going to be doing this kind of work, I wanted to be able to stand. It's how I teach. And then I found this company that puts these uh, pictures that I take from my iPhone on these little eight by eight squares. And what I did, and, and you only see what's behind me, uh, but look, as they go all the way around. What's better is they're just um, double stick tape so I can move them around. So literally, when I walk into my office, I'm being surrounded by my friends with, as you can see, the big whiteboard in the middle because I needed a space where I could. And then I give myself the challenge. I fill up the whiteboard every day. Sometimes I get to the end of the day and I write really big, but I I know I know what happens tactilely when I take the, the vision, the ideas and what I hear in my brain and I see it. And then I see it in different colors. It's probably a whole another podcast we could work on. <laughs> yeah, I think you're an artist in disguise or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.